Welcome to the Railroad Model Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette, and joining me tonight for the show is none other than Mr. Railroad Hobbyist himself, Joe Fugate. Oh, hi there, Paul. Wow, glad you could be here, Joe. A uh, lot to talk about. Uh, some big changes in the magazine have occurred over, uh, you know, since 2009 when you uh, began with it. Uh, you've progressed from quarterly publication to bi-monthly, and now you've just kicked off monthly. Interestingly enough, you know, the readership, and you like to specify their discrete visits to the website, are averaging a little bit over 40000 a month. Why don't you explain just what you mean by that, that term and what you feel the impact is? Okay, well, by unique visits, we mean that if I go to the website six times, I'm only counted once. So that means that we are getting, uh, as of last count, uh, somewhere just under 45,000 visits, unique visitors to the site a month. So that's a pretty significant number, given that uh, I think uh, last I heard that uh, Rail Model Craftsman is somewhere around 60,000 circulation and um, Model Railroader Magazine is about 150,000 circulation, I think. So so we are getting over 40,000 eyes that are interested in our website and what we have available on the site. I'm using the term uh, your Model Railroading Portal because, you know, not only do we do the magazine, but now we've got this podcast. Uh, we're working on a news feed from the site. We've got the video content that's on MRH Theater. Um, we're even investigating the possibility of maybe doing a video podcast this year. So uh, there'll just be a lot uh, available for model railroaders beyond just the magazine. Okay. And we should mention, people that are listening that may not be that familiar with the site, uh, you can read the magazine, you can download it as a PDF uh, document, put it on your uh, hard drive, you can then go back, read it as often as you want. Uh, I guess what, sometime in uh, last year you made it available to be uh, read uh, live via the internet? Yes, we made an online version available as well. So if you don't want to download it and you want you can get what amounts to nearly instant access. You okay. can click a link and bam you're on the site and it brings up the magazine and you can browse through it on the internet if you don't want to bother with a download. Okay. So we even have that option too now. Okay, and of course the website that we're talking about here, uh Joe just shortened it. It's uh HTTP mrmag.com and mrh I'm sorry mrhmag.com right uh, or for you purists out there it can still be reached at model hyphen railroad hyphen hobbyist.com I like the short version myself that yes was a lot to type short version is uh, much simpler and uh, we wanted to make it really easy for people to get to the site if they want uh, and it's certainly a lot easier to just rip off mrhmag.com and bam, you're there. So, uh, and you know, when I was mentioning the, just earlier the whole idea of a 
where your model railroad portal. Uh, I don't want to neglect the great content that a lot of our subscribers are posting on the site either. Uh, I see people posting YouTube videos up there. Um, we've got a, a weekly uh, photo fun fest kind of thread that's created where people post photos. Uh-huh. And there are also others that happen to be working on some pet project. They'll post photos and steps and the progress of their project, uh, as well as just a lot of different discussion around layout designs, different different ideas about the prototype, and uh, different problems that people run across and what their solutions might be. So just a lot of great content there. Okay, well, like you say, an information portal. Right. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your background, uh, professional, whatever, that kind of led you down this path to becoming an Internet publisher. Well, uh, first of all, I think it's useful to say that my wife has been in the typesetting business since the 70s. So um, she already has a background in in publishing uh, from the the back room, so to speak. And then I um, started a paper magazine for a different hobby uh, in the 80s. I was into science fiction role-playing games, and I did a magazine uh, and some some other publications uh, in the 80s. And so uh, with my wife having that typesetting background, she knew the ropes as far as how you put a publication together and and had some contacts as far as who to go to to, to uh, you know, put the... In those days, you did everything on film. So, mm-hmm. you know, how do you take a nice cover painting and turn it into a cover of a magazine with all the text on it and everything, you know, that's on a cover. How do you do all that? Well, she knew how to do all that. So, so um, anyway, I did magazine and, and uh, booklet publishing in the 80s. Okay. So I had some background then in, in publishing. But uh, I got out of that because the hobby kind of, that particular hobby kind of, started going more towards computers and, and different things, and paper publishing really wasn't the thing, and I wasn't into building computer games, so I uh, kind of left that hobby. But then in the around 2004, I got interested in digital video production. Just, okay. to, just kind of a, uh, and, and the other thing, too, is I've always been interested in, in model railroading and trains and and uh, in 91, I, we got a new house with a nice big basement, and so I started building a layout. And uh, one of the things that I really love to do that's sort of in my blood, I guess, is I love to teach. And I love to see uh, the spark in people's eyes when the aha occurs, you know, and they go, oh, that's how you do it. So I just really enjoy that. So I thought, you know, I, I think making videos would be kind of fun and give me a way to to sort of scratch that itch, you know, to to teach. Uh there unfortunately there's not a lot of money in teaching generally, so 
I thought, how about if I make some digital videos on model trains and uh, be able to do some teaching? So that's what I did. We started doing my DVD series, and I thought, well, what about doing sort of a video version of the V&O story, which was a great bit of coverage on one layout with some in-depth. So I did a series of videos on my Siskiyou line, my HO Siskiyou line. And it has a, a unique claim to fame, I guess you could say, in that it uses a mushroom configuration, which is a very special double-deck configuration intended to give you more take advantage of the double deck feature of more layout in a space but because it uses the mushroom configuration it's uh, double opposing decks so the two decks face opposite directions that's what makes it a mushroom as opposed to a traditional double deck where they face the same direction but anyway did the video series and one thing led to another and I did an article for Model Railroader and I thought hey I'll just throw in a little video to go with it, see what they think. I'd already been producing some video by this time, so I refined my skills and was able to do, I think, a decent job producing the the video for Model Railroader, and I sent it to him. Well, uh, Terry Thompson, the, at that time the editor of Model Railroader, called me on the phone and said, how did you do this? You know, is this something, do you do this, do this for a living? What 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 about this? So... We had a conversation, and I started producing videos for Model Railroader. Okay. And uh, did that for a year or so. And unfortunately, at that time, we're talking, I think, um, 2006, 2007, around that time frame. At that time, that's, what, four or five years ago now, three or four mm -hmm. years ago at least. Um, and Model Railroader has a little different approach to how they market this stuff. And they weren't marketing it really the way I thought Internet stuff should be marketed. Uh, I didn't feel like they were pricing it. I thought they were pricing it higher than I would have liked to have seen priced. And as a result, the sales were not real great on what they were selling. At least it wasn't the numbers I was expecting with the 500-pound gorilla and the hobby. Um, and they... We had some problems at first with doing video for Max, and they then backed off of doing video support at all for Max because it was a smaller segment of the market. And I thought, you know, if we can solve those problems, I'd really like to be able to reach the Mac users as well. I, I, I don't want to, to uh, ignore them. So anyway, there were some differences in how to approach this, and I... Throughout this time, I've been noodling on an idea of how to uh, put content on the Internet and somehow create it, do it in a way that there was a business model that would, would be supportable. And so one day it hit me, why not use the business model that Google uses? Google, you know, a lot of their content's free, but the way that they, uh, but they're like a billion-dollar company, and they do it with advertising. Okay. So I thought, hey... How about if we make some really good content and not, I know how to do video content now and put it in PDFs and all of this sort of thing. So uh, why not make what I would have been calling a media zine for model railroading and make it free and ad supported? So I actually talked to Kalmbach about that a bit and they 
were a little iffy on the whole free part. So Okay. So I finally said, well, I think I'll go do this myself. So that's what I did. And so by this time, it was 2008, and I'd let my contract lapse with Kalmbach. And I started gearing up to do Model Railroad Hobbyist magazine. Okay, and you came out with what? Uh, middle of the year when your first issue was uh, available? January 2009. Okay, and that was when you were doing quarterly. So Yes. That's a, that's a pretty quick period of time. I mean, you said you started thinking about it there like 2006 up to 2008, but to get this thing up and running in 12 months, I, I think that's pretty incredible. Yeah, well, I didn't do it all myself. Okay, um, tell me, how did you develop, you've got your concept, you're starting to flesh this thing out. How did you come up with that startup team? Well, what I did is uh, I announced that I was doing this in the summer of 2008. And already my website, my Siskiline website, I had a pretty nice forum on there uh-huh. with uh, lots of regular posts. And, in fact, probably getting about uh, ten, just shy of 10,000 visitors a month on my Siskiline website. Okay. Okay, and also my friend Charlie Comstock, who's local to me, he's like 45 minutes from here, um, he also had a really nice website, had been published in the Hobby Press some, and so he was getting about 10,000 visitors to his website. Now, his venue being Steam and 1950s Freelance and my venue being 1980s and more prototype-based with the Southern Pacific. Different venue to a certain degree, and so there's not uh, total overlap between our audiences. So I figured I could maybe reach 20,000 modelers between Charlie and myself, give Mm -hmm. or take whatever overlap there was. Uh, So I figured we could get to 20,000 circulation on a free magazine fairly quickly. So Charlie was interested in in helping. And then I also had another local gentleman who was part of my ops crew who's very good with computers and um, hung out on the Internet a lot on the different forums. So I figured he could also, uh, you know, help spread the word and also provide uh, support on the website and, and... uh, he was really plugged into what's going on with the hobby as far as what the hobby vendors were doing. It was Jeff Schultz. Okay. And uh, so it was really the three of us. And then I posted, I, I stood up the Model Railroad Hobbyist site. I announced Model Railroad Hobbyist magazine at the NMRA National in Anaheim. Uh, and word started getting around. And it wasn't very long after that that I got a phone call from Marty McGurk. Marty McGurk used to work for Model Railroader. He also was like the in charge of product production at Intermountain for a while and uh, also still does a lot of freelance writing for Kalmbach even today. 
Uh, but he contacted me and he said, hey, this electronic publishing thing sounds really interesting. He said, I'd be interested in being a columnist and um, basically being a part of this. Because he said, I think this is where publishing is going and I'd love to get in on the ground floor on something like this. So so he came along. And then uh, uh, one of the things that was critical that I felt I needed was an ad, some, someone to support the sales side because – and, and I'm a model railroader and a content guy. I'm not really a marketing guy. Okay, I can do it if I need to, but that's not, that's not really where my strength is. So I thought, you know, I really need some. I said the ideal would be someone who's just retired, wants a, a part-time job, uh, has a background in marketing, been in the hobby for a while. Um, all of those sort of things. So I posted a wanted ad on my Cisco line site. And in a couple of weeks, I got a phone call from Les Holmes. And Les is, at the time, was, you know, just retired, had been like a, uh, in marketing for Rockwell, uh, been in the hobby since the 70s. So, you know, fit all of the the profile very, very nicely. And yeah. so, plus he had already had a number of hobby contacts. Uh, so he came on board. And then uh, another key person was Richard Bale. Richard's actually been doing hobby, been, been part of the hobby industry in one form or fashion since the 60s. And has done some publishing as well on his own. And he came to me and says, you know, it would be great if we would have uh, like a news section in the magazine. He said, I'd be interested in doing that. Uh, and, you know, I, I have hobby vendor contacts. And I could go and talk to them and say, we're going to pull together the news. We'd like to get your latest releases in this magazine, you know. And he, he said, I could pull that all together for you. And so, so that's... That's how we did that. And then a few other people came along as well. Uh, Lou, Lou Mott, who does the narrow gauge piece. Somewhere in here, ran across uh, Model Rail Cast uh, podcast and Ryan. And so um, he, he was interested in, in helping out here and there. And, you know, he's helped. He's uh, helped us with video interviews. He helps us with this podcast. Um, has done some writing for the magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for a while we had Tim Morris of Fast Tracks who was interested in doing a column. So he did a few columns for us on track work. Um, he felt like he um, needed to spend most of his time on other pursuits though, so he's kind of bowed out of doing columns for us. But uh, you know, and then there's Jim Duncan, um, and uh, uh, John Dry, who does the N-Scale column. We did have Bernie Kopensky for a little while doing the N-Scale column, but Bernie's gotten more interested in O-Scale recently. Yeah. Plus, uh, he's got a, a particular government job where, because of uh, restrictions on uh, trying to minimize influence, lobbying influence, and that sort of thing. And his government job, he can't really uh, work very closely with a publisher because that might 
uh, show some undue influence as far as uh, affecting his job and uh, become a, come across as lobbying. So um, anyway, he, he can't really write for, uh, for compensation for anybody. Now, that's, that is an interesting point. Yes. Uh, the presumption that model railroading would somehow influence his, uh, his government work. Okay. You didn't right. know well, you had that kind of power, did you? No, well, you know, it's, it's probably the principle of the thing. Rather than uh, have to evaluate who they can and who they can't let uh, influence, they just make it carte blanche, and that way they don't have to worry about it. Sure, hard line in the sand, and there's no uh, no uh, wiggle room. Okay, right, no exceptions. So yeah, and uh, so that's that's how we got the the staff. I'm just I'm I'm afraid I may have forgotten somebody. So <laughs> uh, I just got to make sure and look through the list here of everybody that's that's part of our our site. So. And your your wife is still involved. Patty's still involved. What is what is it that Patty's, you know, doing? What kind of support role was uh, she serving for you? Well, she still does paste up work. She okay. she was originally a professional typesetter back in the days when they were actually doing um, CompuGraphic mm-hmm. typesetting devices, and they actually did markup on text, and they had like the green screen. CRTs, and it would go to a, a device that would output, put it to film, and so it would then make, uh, they print out strips of paper that had this uh, type on it, and then they'd take those and put a sticky wax on the back and uh, paste them up, mm-hmm. and so that's where the, uh, the original term paste up came, and the whole cut and paste which is now turned into a digital metaphor on computers. The whole cut and paste thing was physically with scissors and paste and and uh you know actually cutting and pasting little pieces of paper and and uh moving them around to make the layout and then they'd shoot it on film, the final thing on film. And then you know uh go and make a plate out of it and uh print it. Okay. Back well, up. I've had some wax under my fingernails too, so I understand yes. what you're saying that uh, Patty does. I've, I've done that. Uh, you've uh, been up and running, and of course, you had a startup process going through. Now that you've gone monthly, got that first issue out there, besides your timeline, is there anything else significant that, that's changed in? Putting the uh, magazine to bed, you know, coming up with the articles, the content, and so forth. Well, the biggest deal with going monthly is I now have to come up with 12 cover stories. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, other than that, the magazine is about the same size that it's been. It's grown slightly through the bi-monthly period up to typically around 150 to 160 pages, which is huge for a free publication. Yes, it is. Uh, the idea was, well, one of the things that concerned me is we're ad-supported. And when I looked at the uh, 
website traffic, for example, the website traffic would always spike when we would release a new issue, no surprise, but then it would drop way off such that by the time it was really apparent when we were quarterly, it would be this nice big spike when we release an issue. Then the second month, it would drop to about half of what it was the prior month, and then it would drop to almost nothing on the third month. So when we went by monthly, we still had the spike phenomenon, uh, and the drop-off was a little less on the second month. Uh, but still, the same behavior, and in fact, even more so, would occur with ad traffic. The ad clicks would spike the first month when the issue was released, and then they drop way off on the second month. And so I didn't feel like the advertisers were getting a really good value for their advertising because the clicks weren't strong all the time. Mm-hmm. So by moving to monthly... We hope to see a cons- much more consistent growth on the, in the circulation on the website in terms of website traffic and people reading the magazine, and also in terms of ad traffic. Ad traffic's critical to uh, this venture continuing to go forward. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important that people click on the ads, that they bookmark the ads using the technique that I described in uh, the most recent issue where you can actually drag and drop the sponsor logo onto your browser nav bar. And what that does is that will then create a bookmark that will take you to the vendor's site. But since you did it from our site, it includes tracking information that goes in the URL when they click. And so we can tell then... Uh, even after you've bookmarked it, if you continue to use that bookmark, it will continue to give us credit every time you click the link. So that's very important. Another thing is subscribers. Even though the magazine's free, if you subscribe, that gives us an email that we can use to notify you about hobby news and, of course, tell you about when the next issue is available. But that's a big deal to advertisers because that represents people that are interested enough in our publication that they want to commit to in some form or fashion. And so that's very important to, to us as well. So, One aspect of that, a lot of people sometimes are reticent to give out email address because they don't want to be hounded. I think your execution of the, uh, the weekly news or the monthly news updates that are based upon the email that I get, they're unobtrusive. I click on the link. It takes me to the to the site, and I do really enjoy the updated uh, industry news that's on there, the new car releases and so forth. And to me, it's very transparent. So I would suggest you know the listeners give it a try. Sure, and we we only do weekly. And the other thing is um, your email to us is something we don't take lightly and we take it as a sort of a sacred trust and so we don't give that email out to anybody advertisers nobody you can't pay us enough money for us to give away your email to somebody else it's it's um given to us and we keep it and don't give it away great now let me uh let me maybe uh back up a little bit here 
because now you're looking ahead uh, at the next 12 months. Uh, just give us an overview of how do you how do you plan for 12 months? You know, obviously you've got to be more concerned about February than November, but you know, what's going through your mind as you're trying to fill these slots and create uh, content? Well, the number one thing for me is to make sure we have a good backlog. We've got somewhere between 50 and 60 articles in our backlog at the moment. I'd actually like to have more because the beauty of a large backlog is it gives you um, a lot of flexibility when it comes to balancing content in a magazine. And uh, if your backlogs, the, the thing that's true too is we put somewhere between four and six articles in every issue. So if you consider that we've got 50 to 60 articles in a backlog, um, consider that that means we've got, what, maybe 10 issues. And we'll, and we'll burn through the whole backlog. So, you know, in 10 months, we'll be out of articles if we don't get people consistently giving us articles every month. And if we're chewing up four to six articles every month, then we need to get at least four to six articles in our backlog so that the backlog stays constant. Although I'd like to grow the backlog, so I'd like to see more than six articles submissions a month. And to get six articles in the backlog, I need probably at least 10 to 12 submissions. Uh, I would like to think that every article people submit gets accepted, unfortunately. Uh, some ideas just don't work. Uh, some of the submissions... Uh, people don't understand, I think, how to put an article together. Um, the big one, which I we've mentioned, I think, a couple of times in some editorials or staff notes, is photos. Uh, it's very important that the photos be above, well above average photos. They don't have to be uh, fabulous photos, but they need to at least be well lit, uh, well composed. Uh, in focus, um, you, I am amazed at the number of submissions I've gotten where I get blurry photos. How would anybody expect me to publish that? You know, I, I don't quite understand what they're thinking when they, when, they, when they do that. People seem to be really concerned about the text. I think that's because um, taking pictures involves kind of point and click, literally. Uh, and so people think that's pretty hard to do wrong, although reality is it takes some thought to do good photos. Uh, but they think because of the thought that has to go into the text, that that's more critical. And actually, text is the easiest part for us to clean up and, and do well, because I've got a couple of copy editors. Those are the people I didn't mention. Uh, Joe Brueger and Mike Dodd. Uh, Joe Brueger actually is a retired editor from the Oregonian. So, and has a model railroader, been a model railroader for years as well. So, you know, we've got some people that know what they're doing. And we can edit your text and make you sound good. That's, <laughs> and with today's word processors, that's not a problem. If you don't take a good photograph, I don't care how good Photoshop is. If, that, if that's just a, a black smudge, that's a blurry black smudge in the middle of a, of a photo, I cannot use Photoshop to make it look like a beautiful, crisp, well-lit image. Photoshop's just not that good. So you got to do your 
homework and do some decent photos. If you're no good, get somebody, you know, almost all of us probably know somebody who is fairly good with a camera. Get somebody who knows their stuff and take some good pictures. Um, That's the critical part. And then, of course, with uh, MRH, there's video content as well. And the interesting thing with video, I'm not quite as concerned about the video being as high quality as the photos. The still photos need to be really nice because people can study those. Video these days, people are used to YouTube and and blurry videos of trains running on carpet. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, the cat runs through the scene and all of that. I just I just say if if the video is decent, then we we're probably interested in that content. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, and of course you know Bachman Easy Track made uh, carpet trains uh, totally possible in America. Right, right. <laughs> so so that's the big one. Get getting lots of articles in the hopper and. Uh, because I need 12 cover stories, now I need at least 12 articles that I could use as the feature story in the magazine. And I, ideally, I like a feature story to have the rich media with it. In other words, some, some videos, some click and spins, which, you know, is the 3D pictures of models that you can spin uh, in three dimensions, sort of virtual reality images, as they're sometimes called. Now, is that a software program that does that, that makes that uh, 360 spin? Yeah, it's actually pretty easy to do. Uh, You need a tripod, a camera, a digital camera with uh, some manual settings and some decent lighting and go to the department store and get yourself one of these $10 Lazy Susans. And then uh, mark on the edge in 30 degree increments a little mark so that you get 12 points around this turntable this lazy susan turntable and then put your model on there and make sure the model's on there so it's not going to roll around so put your model on there the easy what i do is if i've got a car that's rolling around i'll just put a little bit of tape uh, on the wheel set and uh you know it'll uh, wrap it around the truck, the the uh, axle of the wheel set, and that's usually enough to keep it so that the car doesn't roll. So anyway, put the let's say I'm going to photograph a box car. So I put the box car on the table, turntable, set up my camera and tripod and lights, set the, figure out what the exposure is. It's going to give me a good picture, and then set the camera on manual. If you don't, as you turn the model, the camera will recompute the exposure. And you'll get what looks like an old movie where when you spin the model, the, the lighting will change. Oh, okay. And that doesn't look really good. So set it on manual and then take 12 pictures. Just spin the guy to each of those 12 points you marked on the edge of the turntable and take 12 photos. And then you can send us the 12 images and we have some software that will stitch that all together. It's called Model Weaver. Uh, it's by Easy Pano, I believe, is the vendor. And it will take those photos and stitch them together into this little QuickTime movie or Flash movie um, that 
you can spin. You basically drag across it with your mouse and it'll spin the image. And so it's it's basically doing like the little flip book you did as a kid, right? Okay. Sure. Where you did each image the the little the cartoon character moves. And so when you flip those fast enough, it looks like the guy's actually moving. And so that's what this is. It's it's just moving through the still images fast enough, it looks like you're actually spinning the model. And the cool thing is you can spin it clockwise, spin it counterclockwise, and it's almost like you're there looking at the model. So for for particular types of presentations, that click and spin is great. I think it's great if you have a new model that, uh, like a vendor's just announced. Now you can study this from all sides. Uh, in our first issue, we haven't done this recently. I'd like to do some more of these. Uh, we actually did click and spin of some N-Scale decoder installs. N-Scale is really tricky when it comes to putting in decoders sometimes. And so I thought it was great that you could actually spin the final model with the shell off. So you could study the decoder install from all angles. Uh, another thing that I think has been very effective with click and spin is, is structure dioramas. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's one thing to have a click and spin of a boxcar, and once you've seen one side of a boxcar, you have a pretty good idea what the other side's going to look like, right? Because it's usually the same, or at least very similar. Well, a structure, all sides of a structure can look different. And so spinning that and click and spin gives you a real good sense of how the structure looks in three dimensions and uh, it's a great way to present structures. I think click and spins are an excellent uh, medium for presenting structures. Excellent points. Yeah, I don't recall having seen that feature on anybody's structure website. Yeah. But okay. uh, we went to like the Craftsman Structure Show last year, and I think in our um, November... October, November issue last year, not this year, but last year we did, or maybe it was the January issue. I think it was the January 2010 issue, actually. We did click and spins of structures from the Craftsman Structure Show. So there was like, you know, 15 click and spins of these structures. And it was just fabulous. We did uh, from the Milwaukee show. Uh, Bar Mills had this great structure, and we took and did a click and spin of that and put it in the Milwaukee show report in like the whatever it was, September issue and that click and spin is gorgeous it's just really fun because you can see the just the different um, like roof angles and there's like a lean to on the side of the structure and everything just the different angles and the way that plays across your screen as you spin the structure, it just um, very enjoyable to study that structure using a click and spin. Excellent. Well, now that uh, we're out there, you know, about two years under the belt, I mean, I have noticed an impact of uh, MRH has had on traditional print uh, enterprises out there. Um, I think what you did has caused them to elevate their game. Uh, what do you see as uh, going down the, the path as 
you know, the consumers, the readers, are the ones who are really benefiting. Uh, do you see that trend continuing, you continuing to raise the bar, if you will? I think so. I don't think we've really leveraged the new digital medium nearly to the degree that it's possible. Part of it is we just haven't envisioned all the things we could do with the medium. And there was just a discussion on the MRH site today. Uh, you know, we did this in the January issue. We did Steve Cavanaugh's gorgeous Western Pacific mushroom layout. And we tried a click and spin. Charlie Comstock actually built uh, a 3D version of the plan in Third Planet. And then we took the plan that he, or the decks at least, that he had constructed in Third Planet. And we did a click and spin out of it. So you can actually spin this, basically spin the room and sort of get some idea of how those decks fit in the room. It wasn't as powerful as I'd like to see because Third Planet doesn't let you make the walls transparent. And I would like, I think it would be useful to have the walls at least be semi-transparent so you could see a little better down inside the room. Um, but one of the things that was uh, discussed on MRH was, well, is there some way that you could give us a better idea of how this stuff fits in a room? How about taking some pictures, more pictures of the room so that we can see, you know, kind of step back and see how this thing fits in the room? Well, the problem is that this layout fills the room. So there's nowhere, nowhere you can go in that room and stand and take a picture and see the whole room. There's just a lot of layout in there. And Steve's done a great job of taking advantage of his space, you know. That's that's what, if you really leverage the space, that's what should happen, is there's not much of a place, at least on a multi-deck design, not many places you can go in the room and see everything. Right. So uh, Jack Burgess, who did that article for us, because he's, he's promoting the 2011 National in Sacramento, an NMRA convention there, the unconventional convention, as they're calling it. Um, really looking forward to that convention this July. But uh, anyway, he he's the one that took those pictures and wrote the article for us. And he sent us a whole bunch of pictures where he just walked around the room taking pictures, snapping pictures. Well, there is so much in that room that uh, it really in some ways, is more confusing to look at all those pictures and try to figure out, now, where is this? How does this fit in? And what are these four decks that I'm seeing here? And, the, you know, it's just really difficult to visualize when all you've got is all these, you know, uh, 25 still pictures all look in different directions and from different places. Uh, so anyway, I said, you know, I'm not so sure how well posting a bunch of still pictures or putting them in the magazine would help, because that was what people were saying. What can be done to help? Well, then uh, Ken Lever said, well, what about just walking around the room with a video camera? And I thought, you know, that's not a bad idea. We almost need to make it standard practice when we do a layout that we have somebody go in and basically walk in the door of the layout room and walk around the room telling us a little bit about, you know, sort of do the walking tour, okay? Yes. And just tell us a little bit about what we're seeing 
and sort of allow us to vicariously go and visit the layout from a visitor's perspective, from a, you know, from a layout visit perspective. You see all the great pictures of the nice, close rail fan scenes, track level scenes, all that, and I think you need that too to get an idea of, of the layout and, and the, the layout owner's vision of what he's trying to model and represent. Uh, but, hey, doing a walking tour with a video camera is not that hard to do. And that's something that our venue can do, you know, our media zine venue can do that a paper magazine is not going to do. So I thought, hey, now there's another example. It's so simple, it's almost too simple. But there's another example of a way that you can really give people a better feel for the layout and what's there. Because what people are looking for with these the, the layout articles, they're looking for ideas. They're looking for, well, how did this guy do it? Mm-hmm. And maybe I can see what he did and uh, you know have get some ideas of my own for what I'm trying to do. Well, if you've got this multi-deck mushroom, double opposing decks, raised floor, uh, stuff, you know, all over the room, people are trying to visualize all of that in three dimensions, and it's tough. So, but uh, one of the things that I've had over and over happen with me, because I have a mushroom as well, is uh, people come and they'll look at the layout in person. They'll go, oh, I finally get it. That's what a mushroom layout looks like. Uh-huh. So, you know, if we could do that with a video camera, then I think people would, there'd be a lot more of those ahas. Remember back to my my desire as a teacher, right? And right. Is to see the light bulbs come on in people's eyes. I go, oh, that's how it works. So that's that's what I see here. This is a great opportunity to make this a standard way that we present layout articles is have just a walking tour on video. Okay, with that kind of, you know, evolving presentation, you're uh, giving greater insight for the uh, the readers in there with video and so forth. Are you not spurring your competitors to become better at what they do and and mimic what you're doing? Oh, I'm sure of it. Okay. I'm sure of it. Uh <clears throat> I don't uh, think that the guys at Kalmbach for one second are not paying attention and not trying to be as tech-savvy as they can possibly be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've got uh, a great website and putting great content on their website all the time. And, you know, everybody just keeps learning the medium and learning what's possible to do with the medium and keeps trying new things and... I'm sure Kalmbach's going to keep doing that. Uh, we're going to keep trying it. Uh, Karsten's is uh, starting to go into that space more, Model Railroad News. And, of course, uh, NMRA Magazine, nmra.org. Uh, they're clearly seeing the web and a, a strong web presence as part of their future. So uh, I think we're all just... We're all, in our own ways, marching in that direction and trying to understand where publishing is going. Because, okay. um, you know, ultimately it's not about paper and ink. It's about information, right? Yes. And getting getting the information in whatever form makes sense. 
in your hands so that you can use it to solve your model railroading problems and get the most satisfying uh, result for your hobby pastime, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, you talk about your weekly uh, news update with the industry. Maybe that's your next video. Bring the the uh, dynamic of video, uh, especially when you have samples of cars and so forth. You know, kind of like the associate editor of Model Railroading, that that they shoot in his office. It's yeah, very, yeah. it's very graphic. I mean, we're visual people, and it, that's why I think that is so so effective because it transcends a a, a still eight by ten glossy and puts it into to life. Well, that's the thing with model trains. One of the things that sets model railroading apart mm-hmm. from a lot of the other hobbies, like a, a, another hobby that's popular I know is military modeling um, tanks and yeah. and uh, airplanes and warships and and all of this sort of thing uh, and those model those guys that model that stuff do a fabulous job they usually build a nice diorama and when you see photos of it it's everything's nicely weathered um, just the the level of detail is is usually knocks your socks off and it's right. very impressive. But it's a static diorama. Yeah. And the thing with model trains is the stuff moves. Hey, it's it it does more than just sit on the shelf. And so it's kind of a cry and shame that we've got this technology that lets us do digital video and and you know do these animations and so on. Why aren't we doing more of showing the hobby at its best? which means those trains do things, yeah. and they do interesting things. So let's do that. Let's show it. Let's show the stuff moving. That's, that's one of the reasons I never pose vehicles in the act of doing something, because as long as you're standing there watching the trains which are moving, that car, that truck, that person, they never move because like, they are frozen in time. So until somebody comes up with a good way to move cars and trucks around the track, you know, I've just avoided doing that because I think it, it's so counterintuitive to what's happening with the trains. Yes, I, I know. That's, that's sort, of a, uh, sort of a sidebar to this conversation. But, uh, yeah, that's something that I, I've always felt is when you're placing figures and vehicles and, and different things that move – ordinarily in real life, on your layout, you should do it in a way that it looks natural that it's not moving. So, for instance, the car should be at a stop sign. Uh, it should be sitting at the at the railroad crossing. Uh, it should be parked in a parking lot. Uh, you know, people, you don't have somebody running across the street kind of frozen. <laughs> But instead, you've got them sitting on a park bench or, you know, they're leaning against a pole or uh, sitting under a tree or sitting on the riverbank fishing. You know, uh, the type of poses where if the guy doesn't move in the next two seconds, it doesn't look weird. One of the things that the Model Road Hobbyist staff has been discussing is where the hobby should go, say, in the next couple decades. Okay. Okay. 
one of the things I think is true is that hobby publishers tend to, uh, like it or not, tend to be sort of uh, the force that galvanizes the hobby and kind of takes it in certain directions. And I know, for example, in the late 70s, when uh, Carstens and Tony Custer did the V&O story, that, like, impacted the hobby for a couple of decades and, mm-hmm. and uh, energized it and really gave it a good sense of direction and uh, moved the hobby forward. And so the question the MRH staff were asking is, what's the next thing that needs to be done to move the hobby forward, keep it exciting, uh, bring new blood into the hobby? What are the things that we need to do? And so, you know, that's an interesting conversation to have. And, and we think we have some ideas on what that needs to be. Um, but I'd be interested in hearing from people what they think the hobby needs. What, what do you think are the areas where the hobby is lacking? What, what do you think, uh, if someone was to do it, would really uh, energize the hobby in a fresh new way? Uh, I'll just throw out a couple of couple of thoughts. One is that it seems like what's being done today in the hobby publishing world is a lot of uh, each issue is kind of a potpourri of techniques and articles, and it's sort of let's fill the fill the issue rather than a real sense of direction. Uh, with a theme, not necessarily theme issue, but a sort of an overarching philosophy as to where we're taking the hobby based on the content that's being put in the publication. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So what is that overarching theme, that overarching philosophy that needs to be presented to help people get it around the hobby. And there's a couple of things that that uh, I've thought about. We were having a discussion. I've, I've got a thread that's attempting to poke at this some um, on the MRH website. And one of the things that somebody brought up, uh, there's a gentleman on there, our, uh, LKNO is his handle on our website. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan Bailey's his actual real name. But uh, anyway, uh, LK, I'll just call him LK. LK was uh, saying that he's fairly new in the hobby and he was thinking table when he was starting out to do layout design. And he said he's come to realize that actually the smart way to do a layout is not table, it's shelf. Okay. And, you know, we all now, if you've been in the hobby for a while, you think, uh, you know, a shelf-type design, walk-around layout design, along-the-walls-type design. And you get you generally get a lot more good layout design when you take that approach. Part of it is because a layout, by, or not a layout, but a railroad, a real railroad by nature is linear, right? And so... If you put this thing in the middle of the room, you're sort of treating it like a puddle or this circular thing. And uh, real railroads don't go in circles. They actually kind of follow a path from one place to another. 
So if you go along the wall, it's much easier to design something that feels right. It actually follows a path around the room along the wall. So, but you know, that's a, that's a little tidbit that what if we, uh, as a publication, consistently from month to month to month said, it's not table, it's shelf. And so when newbies pick up the magazine, right away we've got them going the right direction. Instead of them going off, doing this table thing for a year or two or, or whatever and getting frustrated and maybe even leaving the hobby. You know, so that's an example of maybe something that we as a publisher could be doing to distill things down so that people get it more quickly and to give it a much clearer sense of direction instead of fubbling around. That's right, because we've done it enough and we realize that and we presume anybody coming new to the hobby instantly grasps it. And like you say, they don't. So the guidance, the magazine would be guiding them, you know, okay, I think it's an excellent idea. Right. So there's probably a lot of those sort of areas where those of us who've been in the hobby for a long time just take it for granted, but we could distill it down into something really simple and people could very quickly be given the guidance that they need and be going off in the direction that they need. I think of uh, Tony Custer. Uh, several years ago now, it was the first time I saw this, he said, if you're going to design a layout, and he took a picture, a slide, and threw it up on the screen, and it was a picture of two forks on his table, his dining table, and the forks were handle to handle end. So the fork ends were on opposite ends from each other, Right. And he said, if you're going to think layout design, think this, fork. And so he went on to describe, you got a staging yard at each end, and then the track goes in between the two staging yards. With the idea, see, this is from the philosophy that that uh, Tony helped really popularize with the V&O story, the whole concept of beyond the basement. And so you've got this visible section of the of the world that represents what you've modeled on your layout. But real world is that most railroads are not point to point with no connections at the ends. Real railroads tend to connect to the rest of the world on both ends usually. And so by having that design with the forked ends at the ends, then you put your staging yards at the end. That's where the the tongs on the fork represent the tracks on a staging yard. And then you have your layout in between those two staging yards. So, you know, that's another example of a very visual, simple, almost tongue-in-cheek fun way to explain um, what's considered to be modern best practice layout design is the two forks. So more of those sort of things, I think, uh, need to be uh, put out in the publications like ours and the other publications in the hobby to really sort to help crystallize the hobby quickly for people so that they can be going off and having more fun and be more satisfied with their modeling. And you've almost just stated the theme. You know, yeah. the best practices uh, program. 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's so fluid that you'd almost need a paragraph summary of, of where we are today with each issue. You know, yeah. certainly something that refers back to the uh, an appendix so that the newbies coming in can go back. Oh, I can go back six months, read this article, and pick up from the beginning very quickly. I think it's uh -huh. an excellent idea. Yeah. I like that. So you've got a thread going. People can email you at uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist or MRHMag.com. And uh, this is a living document. Yeah, they can email or just, if you're not a subscriber, go subscribe on our website. All we ask is you give us your email address. And uh, you can use your email address to log in. Um, we ask you to subscribe so not so much that um, we even necessarily want to spam you with a bunch of email. We try not to do that. But uh, as you know, if you don't make people sign up somehow to subscribe to your website, then you get the spam bots and the hackers of the world hit your website with all kinds of trash. Uh, and so anyway, by having you sign up, then we know that you're a legit person with a real email address, and then you can go and post on our site. So, yeah, join in the conversation on the uh, on this topic as well. Uh, that that particular topic is called looking forward, looking back. I think something like that. And remind the uh, the listeners again when you look at the pages, you're looking at the advertisers. Click on the link. Let them know where you saw their product and click it that way. And then Joe, like he said, got a, a brief explanation of how to save that link into your bookmark so that MRH uh, gets ongoing credit for the traffic that it supplies to these advertisers. That's, right. That's what yes. makes the magazine successful. Yes. Click, click the links. Click the ads. And also, if you buy something from the vendor, and it was, and, and you originally found out about them through MRH, say something. We've had a number of of uh, cases where I know we sent people to vendors, and people are going and buying stuff, and then we talk to the vendor and say, "How's your ad doing?" They go, "We nobody ever mentions model railroad hobbyists. We don't know if our we don't think our ads doing us any good." So, you know, and I know that that's not the case. So just take another 30 seconds and, you know, set, click the contact us link on their website and say, hey, I just bought this stuff because of I found out about you in Model Road Hobbies. You know, that's all you need to say. Just one sentence. And uh, then when I talk to the advertisers, they'll go, yeah, we've had, you know, 20 people tell us blah 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 whatever we found out about they found out about us through model road hobbyists so we know our ads of value for us so well great well it's been a very good hour uh i appreciate you being on the uh the podcast joe uh looking for much more great things to come out of the magazine i've been a subscriber since day one yes that's that's great and also paul we really appreciate what you're doing and uh, hosting this podcast for us. And, uh, you know, as I've mentioned, uh, you should be proud of yourself because 
if you go on iTunes consistently, the Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast is the leading podcast in iTunes under the oh. Model Railroading area. So, so uh, congratulations. Well, thank you very much for that. Yes. So we would like to thank all of our listeners and stay tuned for new upcoming episodes of the Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast. 